Welcome everyone to A Reason for Hope. This is a weekday broadcast where we take people's questions live online on various social media platforms every weekday, 5 to 6 p.m. So if you've got questions about the Bible, about the Christian worldview, how to apply certain passages to your life, or how to interpret passages that maybe you're having a little trouble understanding, uh, feel free to uh, join us here on A Reason for Hope. We have multiple ways where you can actually uh, uh, watch live and engage with us live. <clears throat> I'll share with those with you right now. Of course, on Facebook, you can check us out at CCF Tucson. That's our handle on Facebook. And uh, if you do come and watch us on Facebook, we'd really appreciate it if you'd like and maybe even share this video with others. It'd be helpful to uh, <clears throat> grow our audience. We also live stream this to YouTube, and we are watching the comment section throughout the program. So if you have a question, just go to our YouTube channel, and the handle, of course, is YouTube at A Reason for Hope 546. And please subscribe, and of course, chime that little notification bell so that you can uh, know when we're going to be live in the future. We also live stream all of our church services to these platforms. If you want to uh, follow our senior teaching pastor and senior pastor Scott Richards, uh, we uh, when he's here, he will monitor his Twitter feed. But if you want to ask a question and you're not watching the program, you just want to throw a question out there that we could uh, tackle at a later time, feel free to follow him at Twitter at, at Scar, uh, Scott <coughs> R4H. <coughs> I forgot my mouth today. <laughs> that's, that's at Scott R4H on Twitter. Uh, you can also watch our program, live stream, and even comment right on our website. So if you kind of don't want to get involved with some of the social media platforms, you want to kind of avoid that area, just go to the Watch Live tab on our website. We also have an app you can download from the Apple, iTunes, uh, the Android, and we have it on a uh, Roku. Uh, so you can actually join prayer groups, um, look through the Bible digitally, and catch up on all our most recent messages as well as watch this program. And if you want to anonymously just send in a question and don't want to be on any social media platform, just email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope, all spelled out, at gmail.com. Today in studio with us is Pastor Sean Richards. Hey, bud. Hi. <laughs> he is uh, just an all-around brilliant guy. And uh, currently, you're teaching the. Well, you're teaching basically everyone shorter than me, first grade <laughs> through high school, but uh, in separate categories. We're going through basic apologetics, uh, the sort of stuff that they usually go on TV later on in life and assume their pastor never taught them. Well, they're going to hear it whether they understand it or not. But I just awesome. have lower expectations as the grades get lower. So. <laughs> Very cool. And of course, Peter Martin's here, uh, author, uh, Marine veteran, and pastor and counselor. He does a lot of uh, marital counseling uh, here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Uh, how are you doing today? Doing good. Good. Well, glad to have you two here. Uh, before we tackle our subject for the day and get to your questions online, we're going to take a moment to pray. Favorite part. Sean, would you do the honors? Okay. <laughs> Dad, thank you that we have the chance of being here. We want to invite you to be here as well, to not only speak to your people, but to speak in such a way that's meaningful to them. With all the interesting things that are happening in the world, we want to ask that you would be the one to make sense of it all, not just in the face of it, but in refocusing ourselves on you, on your word, and on your heart. 
as it's demonstrated towards us, we pray it would also be demonstrated through us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 He's true. All so right. what do you have for us today, Peter? You have uh, you can tell you're itching to itching. share. We're in to go, man. Uh, yeah, so me and Sean talked about a book that I read recently this year called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. Really excellent book. And we talked about how it goes through essentially our modern age, and it traces it back through different philosophers throughout the past 500 years. So uh, all these guys are bad. <laughs> all these guys are not Christian. And all these guys have led in their own unique way to the decay of modern day society. And I recommended it on Thursday. It's a good read. But I also said it's a little complex, right? So it's, it's a little tough to get through if you're not into philosophy, if you're not into this type of subject matter. But I also said that I think it's very important at understanding our current age and to be able to interact with it successfully, right? So uh, for those guys who are into apologetics, you know that when you talk to someone from a different faith group, the, one of the most difficult things to do is to surmount the language barrier, right? We mean very different things when we say various terms, and we have very different worldviews. And if you don't understand those varying worldviews, you're not going to be able to effectively communicate with the person that you're talking to. Uh, even if you have the truth of the gospel, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, to the Jew, I became a Jew, to the Greek, I became a Greek, to those under the law is one under the law, as those without the law is one without the law, that I may win the more for Christ. He's not compromising the gospel, he's not changing the gospel, but he is emphasizing certain points to reach a certain demographic of people. And so I said, this is one of the most important books, I believe, that has been written in modern times that explains our current age in uh, really, really clear and uh, very effective language and helps us to better interact with our modern day. So because it's such an important work, I wanted to actually take a look at the various thinkers that uh, Carl Truman points out and spend a little bit more time dissecting their thoughts and explaining how their thoughts have affected our modern day culture. One more caveat I'll put in there before I get into our, our first thinker is because the culture is so impactful on the way that we think and the way that we behave, uh, if you don't think that you are a product of your culture, you're not thinking hard enough, right? Everyone is a product to one extent or another of their current cultural moment. And if they don't understand what those impositions are and what those ideas of their culture are, that movement will be unthinking. And therefore, it will be more, uh, I guess you call it brainwashing or more conforming. So it's very important to understand what our current culture believes so that you yourself, even as a Christian, aren't undertaken by these ideas that we're going to be talking about. Ideas are very dangerous. They spread very rapidly, and if we're not careful, they take us over very quickly. So even though these guys that I'm going to be talking about are these big thinkers, people that 99% of the population have never read, their ideas have become mainstream. And because their ideas have become mainstream, you'll hear them a lot. So the first guy that we're going to be talking about is Friedrich Nietzsche. So I originally wanted to start with Jean-Jacques Rousseau because chronologically that's uh, who comes first in this line of descent, if you want to put it that way. Uh, but Nietzsche I found to be really important uh, talking about because he is one of the only thinkers that is intellectually honest, right? So Nietzsche is definitely the smartest of all these guys that we're going to be talking about. And he's very honest about what he's thinking and why he's thinking the way that he is. And he actually condemns many of his contemporaries and many of the people that we're going to be talking about in these sessions because he says you're not being intellectually consistent. You are taking parts of Christianity and then you're leaving out other parts and that doesn't work. You have to be consistent in your logic. So 
his most famous quote, which I'm going to read for us today, I'm going to go over three of his books, uh, The Gay Science, Beyond Good and Evil, and The Antichrist. And we're going to see kind of his de-evolution as he kind of descends into madness because it's In more ways than one. <laughs> yeah, he actually did descend into madness. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're going to get into some of his thoughts. So this is from The Gay Science. And uh, The Gay Science, it had nothing to do with homosexuality, by the way. It just means like the joyful science, the happy science. And he's talking about modern philosophy. Well, modern for him. Uh, he says, this is a story from which we get the phrase, if you've ever heard the phrase, God is dead, right? This is where it comes from. It comes from the book, The Gay Science, and from this particular story. So he's telling a story of a madman who runs into a group of intellectuals. And it says this, the insane man jumped into their midst and transfixed them with his glances. Where is God gone? He called out. I mean to tell you, we have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers, but how have we done it? How are we able to drink up the sea? Who have who's given us the sponge that we could wipe away the horizon? What did we do when we loosened this earth from the sun? Whither does it move now? Whither do we move? Has it not become colder? Does not light come on continually, darker and darker? Shall we not have to light lanterns in the morning? Do we not hear the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we not smell the divine putrefaction? For even God's putrefy. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have, we have killed him. How shall we console ourselves, the most murderous of all murderers? The holiest and the mightiest of the world has hitherto possessed, has bled to death underneath our knives. Who will wipe the blood from us? With what water shall we cleanse ourselves? What festivals, what sacred games shall we have to devise? Is not the magnitude of this deed too great for us? Shall we not ourselves have to become gods merely to seem worthy of it? So, in this quote, again, the most famous quote, he's not saying that God ever existed and that we've killed him. What he's saying is that mankind, and this is an admonition from this text, he's saying that mankind has elevated the most supreme and beneficent vision of God ever, right? So he thinks that this is the best version of God that mankind has ever created, the Judeo-Christian God. And he says, through our philosophies and our sciences, we've gotten rid of the need for God, and therefore we've killed him. And what he says is that these intellectuals, they don't want to deal with the reality of God, but they like some of his stuff. Right? They, they, like, they like the morality that Christianity provides. They like the ethics that Christianity provides. They even like the impetus for science and things like that that Christianity provides. And he's saying, we can't do that. We have unhinged the earth from the sun, right? There's no way we could possibly maintain the philosophy of God while denying the reality of God. And he warns in this book, as well as in Beyond Good and Evil, mm. that if Europe specifically can't let go of the Judeo-Christian God and they instead move into their views of science and morality, holding on to the Christian, uh, I guess you could so call them the, the eddies, right? The, the things that are left over from Christianity. If they hold on to them but deny God, he says it will actually lead to some of the worst impositions on mankind ever seen. He predicts... World War One, he predicts World War Two, and he predicts the Cold War, all based on this. He is very frightened that if mankind doesn't realize what we've done, then we will actually create new and worse religious concepts that end up essentially corroding us and turning us more violent and evil, right? So he is very, very uh, stringent in these books of like, we have to get rid of the idea of God. We have to build up a morality that is devoid of him. Otherwise, we're actually going to be building on a society. And by basically sawing off the limb that we're standing on, we will create a society that is ripe 
for all sorts of totalitarian regimes and destructive impositions on mankind. So he's actually very smart and very wise when he said that, but he is wrong about his premise, and we'll talk more about that in a second. Anything you'd like to add to that? Well, just for the benefit of those listening, when we're talking about Nietzsche's worldview, he obviously was an atheist, Mm -hmm. and we need to recognize we are not endorsing the philosophies that he's espousing here. But when he's putting forward this idea, the train of thought he's following, the tracks, if you will, is the idea that even the pagan gods of old times had some sort of law, some sort of cultural structure that kept everything in line. And as they progressed into the Judeo-Christian God, the Christian kingdom, if you will, the best-case scenario for society, according to Nietzsche's worldview, isn't to remove God entirely, but replace him with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And if we don't do that, we're not going to take a step forward beyond the Judeo-Christian God. We'll go all the way back and worse to before the pagans had invented God's to justify their sense of morality. Once again, not our worldview, but we need to recognize as he's thinking these things through, he's right. You abandon the Christian God, (laughs) you go to worse than paganism. You replace the Christian God with paganism, you might borrow some of his stuff. But the working assumption, as you're likely probably going to explain in four seconds, is the idea that to replace or to remove the Judeo-Christian God has any other option than to result that's total anarchy. Absolutely. Okay, so uh, next quote, this is from his book, Beyond Good and Evil, and he's, uh, by the way, it's very difficult to read Nietzsche because he doesn't actually write his books in a cohesive format. It's more like the book of Proverbs. It's detached thoughts that are placed within uh, just general idea. So it's like he he has this general idea and he's like, okay, I'm just going to write thoughts about it. And so each book has hundreds of them, and they're, they're all detached from one another. And <laughs> My book on what I've been thinking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, it's really interesting to read him. Uh, like I said, he is definitely the brightest of all the thinkers that we're going over. Doesn't mean he's not wrong. <laughs> it just means he's much smarter than a lot of these other guys that we're going over. So uh, what should we replace God with? Now, Sean alluded to it. We have to replace him with ourselves. That's his idea. We'll talk more about that and how it's... Uh, all, those of you guys who are listening and pay attention, you're like, oh... That makes sense in our current culture. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this this is where it comes from. So this is from Beyond Good and Evil. He says, psychologists should bethink themselves before putting down the instinct of self-preservation as the cardinal instinct of an organic being. A living thing seeks above all to discharge its strength. Life itself is will to power. Self-preservation is only one of the indirect and most frequent results thereof. So what's he saying? In order for man to take his place as divine, if you want to put it that way, we have to realize that our ultimate end of life is not the preservation of life, but the will to power, to become more powerful, to be more competent, to build up our our skills. Now, he, he saw this as somewhat positive, finding a source of life within your own strength, to put it another way, to become a better father, to become a better husband, to become a better worker, right? So some of it was positive, but some of it was negative. And we're going to get to the negatives in a little bit. But the more positive aspects of it is this life is all you have. So you might as well live within the strength that is given to you, right? That, that's his general philosophy of life. So in our modern day, you may be thinking that sounds very familiar, right? The idea that subjective truth is the only truth that matters, that I raise myself up and I'm not bound or held to any tradition or morality that came before me, but I make for myself what I believe to be right. He later on in the same book says the greatest will to power is the power over self 
and tradition. So in other words, once again, if I could raise above tradition, if I could raise above my instincts and my moralities, I'm becoming more free. And if I'm becoming more free, I'm becoming more of the divine being that I was meant to be, right? I'm no longer bound by anything outside of myself. So if you look at our modern culture, like how do we get to this world in which people think the number one way to be free is to throw off everything that came before them, all sexual mores, all religious mores, right? Where did they get this idea? A lot of it comes from Nietzsche, believe it or not. And this idea also has inundated the church. Many people within the church, we call it progressive Christianity now, which is a heretical branch, by the way. So I, yeah, I would not true. call it Christianity. Uh, but even in progressive Christianity, this idea holds true. What is most real and most true is not what's found in the text of Scripture, but it's what's most real and most true for me. And my will to power is the exercise of my will over that which has come before me. <clears throat> even my own instincts must be subjected to what I believe to be true, because that is the surest way to become free, right? This is all Nietzsche, right? Uh, anything you'd like to add to that or comment on it? Just uh, remember that we're talking to a guy who's thought things through, but with some faulty assumptions. And regardless of how impressive his mustache sideburn combo it was, was, pretty impressive. <laughs> uh, we are not being critical because we believe we're smarter than him, but we spotted the mistake he made early. Right. And then from that are thinking through what might have been and what was. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, in our own Christian churches, we have to be very careful about that. Freedom for the Christian comes through subjugation, right? The, the way that we become free is subjecting ourselves to the correct morals of the universe, right? That is the entire premise of the book of Proverbs, is that God has created the universe according to wisdom. And the centerpiece of wisdom is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. God not only holds the universe together, but his rules govern the dictates of the universe itself. So to deny God and to deny his will is to deny liberty. It's to be subjected not to the good of the universe, but to the evil that is within your own soul. It holds you open to excess and to frailty and to destruction. So Nietzsche believes, well, there is no God. So therefore, the way to become free is to throw off everything that came before. For the Christian, we say there is a God. He is real. There is a way that he has organized the universe. And we discover how to serve him and to love him through the direct revelation that he has given us in his word. But also, we're helped along the path, if you want to put it that way, by the traditions of those who came before us. It's not that their traditions are all correct. Many of them are not. But they are mankind's attempt, sometimes sincere, sometimes not so sincere. But it is mankind's attempt to try to put into practice the words of God. And so we learn from the past and we learn primarily through revelation namely scripture. That's how we become free. That's how we unite ourselves to truth. Nietzsche's idea is there is no such thing as truth because everything is subjective and God is dead. So therefore, create your own truth through your will to power and you'll become more free. Because right. the word God itself means one with power. And he would agree with everything that's being said. <clears throat> he just wouldn't exclusively attribute it to right. the right. Christian God. He says, we're the new gods now. I'm the one who decides truth. And if my ideals line up with my lifestyle, I'm a good person because I'm God now. Exactly. Uh, Does this, <clears throat> yeah. Did this largely influence like postmodern theory, especially when it comes to Yeah, I forgot to say, so Nietzsche lived from the early 1800s to the late 1800s. He died, I think, in 1890-ish. Uh, like Sean said, he got syphilis, went mad, and died. Uh, As a result of his lifestyle, his will to power. That's considered yeah, post-enlightenment. 
Um, yeah, but his his thought process through German, uh, Germany was kind of the peak of the intellectual. It was the intellectual center of Europe at that point. And so when his ideas started to go mainstream throughout Western Europe, he was resisted for a while, but then they started becoming very mainstream. Um, it did kick off more of the postmodern ideas. So now intellectuals would pay at least some amount of lip service to God prior to Nietzsche. They, even like guys like David Hume and Voltaire, uh, although they were they were basically atheists. They were like, well, we're not really atheists. You know, there is Voltaire a God. Was an atheist. Yeah, they, atheist. they kick out, kick yeah. God out the front door and then kind of secretly let him in the back door. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, they, they, they were atheists, definitely, but they still kind of paid lip service to some sort of divinity. And you could see when you read them, you're like, this is not atheist, right? You are still clinging to the moralities of Christianity and you're not willing to admit it. It's uh, listening to a Michael Shermer debate. Exactly. So in their day, they were progressive atheists. Exactly. Kind of. <laughs> and he's the one who's like, no, there is no God, which did influence guys like Albert Camus and people like that who kicked off the postmodern age, mm -hmm. um, who are more overtly atheistic. Now, even though they're influenced by Nietzsche, they still do cling to levels of Christian morality. So Nietzsche would be embarrassed by them as well, but mm. at least they're trying to follow him, right? So usually these great thinkers, what happens is that their thoughts become watered down for public consumption. And that's what we're seeing. There's a watered down version of Nietzsche that's alive and well today. Because um, uh, a more potent version of it ended up resulting in a incident in the 1940s. You may have heard of it. Yeah, uh, yeah interesting. So um, this is another quote from Beyond Good and Evil. God on the cross. Hitherto, there had never been, nowhere, uh, been such a boldness and inversion, nor anything at once so dreadful, questioning and questionable as this formula. It promised a transvaluation of all ancient values. Now, what he means by that, if God is the center of all morality, which he's acknowledging, he doesn't believe that there is a God, but he says that in all cultures, there's been a center of morality and it's always been called God. And he says to put God on the cross, to put God in a position of the sufferer as opposed to the sovereign ruler, where power is all that matters, insinuates to people that one of the ways to power is through suffering, right? If I want to be a good, a moral person, it comes not through me, my will to power, not through me dominating you and dominating what you want in relation to what I want. It comes through me giving up what I want in value and preference to other people. He also goes on to talk about pitying the poor and pitying people who are weak and, and frail. And he calls this an evil because it's depriving the people who are powerful from their own and uh, self-contained goods, mm -hmm. right? So Nietzsche's idea here is that Christianity is actually a force of evil because it actually promotes an ideal of weakness, humility, and love as opposed to the ideal of the will to power. So uh, Nietzsche was not a big fan of Christianity as a result. Now, once again, this is something that we're seeing in our modern culture. When Nietzsche said it, it was relatively new. Like guys like Voltaire and again, Hume, they thought Christianity was wrong, but they weren't like this, right? This is, Christianity isn't wrong, it's evil. That's what Nietzsche is saying. It's not wrong, it's evil. So towards the end of his life, he wrote a book called The Antichrist. Go figure why he chose that title. Uh, this is a quote from The Antichrist. This eternal accusation against Christianity, I shall write upon all walls, wherever walls can be found. I have letters that even the blind will be able to see. I call Christianity the one great curse, the one great intrinsic depravity, the one great instinct of revenge, for which no means are venomous enough or secret, subterranean, and small enough. 
I call it the one immortal blemish upon the human race. Not a fan of Christianity was Friedrich Nietzsche. Sounds a bit biased. <laughs> yeah. a bit. It know. was the obstacle between his philosophy and the world. Exactly. So in modern day, when you see guys like Chris, Christopher Hitchens is dead, but uh, the philosophy of Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, people like that, you're like, why are you attacking Christianity? <clears throat> Again, they're influenced by Nietzsche. Their belief is Christianity is not just wrong, it's evil, right? It's bad for mm-hmm. mankind. We need to get rid of it. It has caused war and poverty and subjugation and oppression and evil and darkness, and we have to get rid of it mm-hmm. if we want our culture to thrive and to flourish. The way so, I think it will. Yeah, <laughs> the way that, exactly, the way that Nietzsche thought it would. So what we have to understand, and this, this goes back to what we're talking about, Nietzsche is right here. The death of God, meaning getting rid of the concept of God, is not going to lead to mutual, I guess you could call it uh, agreeability between atheist and Christian. What he understood, and you could see it through these last two quotes, why was there religious toleration in Europe before Nietzsche? Because of Christianity. Those with power allowed for those without power to thrive and to flourish. The Christians who were in power in Europe were allowing those who are not Christian in Europe to thrive and flourish because we have an idea. We have a philosophy that states it's good to be nice and kind to people no matter what, right? The idea Allow of... Allow the wheat and the tares to grow together. They'll be judged at the end. Now, exactly. no, are we saying everyone who claimed to be Christian did that? No, but we are saying that our actual text, our God's revelation of himself states that the opposition is going to be allowed to not only endure, but flourish, but flourish yeah. until our Lord returns. Exactly. That was an obstacle to Nietzsche's idea that if you have the most power, you should be ruling. Going right. back to the Roman pagan idea, right. the emperors making themselves right. gods and saying, you obey my law, you pinch to my altar alongside the pantheon. Where you and die. If, yeah. <laughs> and that, that was about as much yeah. power as you could have over someone. Yet Jesus said what? Don't fear him who can t- kill your body but can't touch the soul. A higher priority than anything man could do was put in place. And Nietzsche hated that yeah. because he didn't see a power beyond what he could do with his own mustache. <laughs> but, be, but again, Nietzsche is correct. Yeah. That if an atheist, if a secular atheist worldview starts to take dominance within a culture, it can't coexist with Christianity. It can't. There's no way. Christianity was the thing that shut it out in the first place. And if Christianity is allowed to thrive, it will once again shut out, in, in Nietzsche's ideology, the brightness and the goodness of modern-day secularism, right? So mm-hmm. he believed that it has to be crushed. It has to be stamped out. So, so there's no coexistence at all, not even there subjugation. There is no just... coexistence, right? Not in his ideology. So if you're wondering today, why are they pushing so hard? Why are they trying to indoctrinate kids so young into these different ideologies? Why is this happening? Because as Nietzsche says, you can't have these things coexist. Now, he did think of a way they could coexist. I'm going to read a passage uh, from Beyond Good and Evil to illustrate this. He says, perhaps the most solemn conceptions that have caused the most fighting, uh, fighting and suffering, the conceptions of God and sin, will one day seem to us the more importance uh, of no more importance than a child's plaything or a child's pain seem to an old man's. And perhaps another plaything and another pain will be uh, then a nece- necessary once more for the old man always childish enough, an eternal child. So he's like, so uh, Christianity can kind of exist, but as like a child's plaything. It's going to be denigrated and made fun of and mocked and ridiculed. But, you know, 
if you want to be childlike and, and believe in that nonsense, go for it. But what way would Christianity subsist in his ideal culture? This is again from Beyond Good and Evil. To be sure, to make also the bad counter-reckoning against such uh, religions and to bring to light their secret dangers. The cost is always excessive and terrible when religions do not operate as an educational and disciplinary medium in the hands of the philosopher, but rule voluntarily and paramountly when they wish to be the final end and not a means along with other means. What's he saying? In the hands of the ubermensch, the philosopher, the, the person who rises above other men and creates his own morality, religion becomes a tool to indoctrinate people who are not smart enough to understand this, but need this childish representation in order to indoctrinate you into a particular ideology. This is exactly what the Soviets did when they took over Russia. This is exactly what the Chinese did. So, and this is exactly what Hitler did as well. Mm -hmm. It's a mistake to believe that these religion, these uh, these totalitarian forces got rid of Christianity. They didn't. They did something worse. They hollowed them out and created them into propagandistic efforts for the state. Right. So they they basically wore them like meat puppets, and they <clears> used <throat> them to indoctrinate people who gave lip service to Christianity, like the three self church in mainland China. Exactly. And so again, when you're looking at why is it that uh, our current culture, our current leftist political ideation that is clearly opposed to Christianity, all Christian values, why are they all Christian? Why is Joe Biden claiming so fervently to be a Catholic? Why is, why is uh, yeah, Nancy Pelosi claiming so fervently to be a Catholic? It's because they want to hollow out Christianity and use it as a force for their political ideology. Mm. That's the whole point. So, uh, when you're looking at it, like, why are they doing it? Why is Barack Obama attending a church? Why, you know, like, what's so going on? They're stealing the Christian label while swapping out the actual worldview. Exactly. That's the idea. So, again, as Christianity, we have, and he points this out as well. Nietzsche points this out very well. He points out that because Christians want to coexist, where our ideology is actually weak to this type of movement. In other words, because we want so badly to get along with everybody, we have that temperament as Christians where we just want to love everybody. When, a, when someone with power comes in and says, hey, you guys are doing great, just change a little here and change a little there. A lot of Christians say, well, what's the harm? You know, what's so bad about changing this or that? We're still preaching the gospel. Frog in the kettle. <laughs> exactly. And the, the line gets moved further and further and further until you get to the place where we're at today. You don't even recognize Christianity. You don't even recognize yeah. Christianity anymore. So uh, in ancient times, again, this is where Nietzsche is correct, the overt persecution of the church by like the Romans would be preferable to this. Romans were not willing for Christianity to exist, and so they overtly persecuted. This modern persecution is more tempting. And this does make a lot of sense of some of the passages in the New Testament where Paul and Jesus are predicting a world now where Christianity is gone, but where it's been hollowed out, where it's been turned into something that it wasn't originally. So when Paul talks about people, Christians, heaping up for themselves teachers to tickle their own ears, when Jesus talks about the uh, Antichrist deceiving, if he can, even the elect, what he's talking about is not a system that's going to destroy Christianity, but worse, one that's going to subjugate it. Now, that is kind of the world that we're living in. We're living in a world in which there is a massive attempt not to destroy Christianity, but to subjugate it for its own ends. 
There is a type of Christianity that is tolerated even by the most ardent atheists, and that is the Christianity that has been defanged, the Christianity Mm -hmm. that is not really Christianity, the Christianity that is indistinguishable from the modern moment, but just we talk about God and the Bible and stuff every now and then. And that works best when you are comfortable. You know, when Christians were being thrown into the lion's den, Christianity flourished, but as soon as they were allowed to sit in the Colosseums, Christianity sort of died. Exactly. That's why I'm saying it's a it's more dangerous form of persecution. The overt persecution causes Christians to dig down, to become more faithful and more out, uh, outspoken against their culture. When Christianity is accepted and then said, well, you're still accepted, just these parts of you aren't accepted. Mm. Christians have a tendency to say, oh, okay, just in polite company, we'll talk like this. You know, just mm-hmm. just in these instances, we won't mention or bring, because it offends people. You know, we don't want to offend people. We want we want people to be able to come to Christ. So we're still preaching the gospel, but we're just going to get rid of these things. And then slowly but surely, you're getting rid of the gospel itself. Right? You move into what progressive yeah. Christianity is today, in which the sacrifice of Jesus was a cosmic mistake, and there is no need for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ alone. As a side note, and we don't have to address this at this moment, so you're, I, wanna, I want you to finish your, your thoughts on that, but what drives Western Christianity to be so politically correct, so apologetic rather than polemical? What, why is polemical polemic seemingly um, a negative? I remember doing the Speaker's Corner with Jay Smith in Hyde Park in London, and he was writing his dissertation on the polemics of Paul. He says, everyone... You know, you can find a million books on apologetics, but never have you fi- can you find a book on polemics, like mm. what that approach means. And <clears throat> and I was really taken back by that because I thought, you know, being a missionary and spending so much so much time on college campuses, especially in foreign countries, where I was having to address questions from Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims, my approach was very gentle, very polite, very friendly, yet not disregarding the truth. Say what needs to be said, but his approach was very different, and so I'd be interested to hear you guys bounce that back and forth yeah, at some so point. <clears throat> let me just finish up on Nietzsche, and then that could be our first question that we get into. So uh, once again, we're going through these uh, great in the sense of their impact, not their goodness, <laughs> thinkers of the past couple hundred years to explain their role in modern society. So in Nietzsche, we have someone who not only predicts what the death of God means, means meaning that he pushed philosophers of his day to think through what it means to actually get rid of God, not just to hold on to the remnants of God and deny everything else. But he also created an idea in which Christianity is not just something that's wrong, but something that is evil and needs to be overthrown. Um, that is kind of one of his main contributions to our modern moment. Uh, now, to uh, anything you want to add about Nietzsche before we move into the first question? No. All right, so the first question is, why are Christians so... I guess you could say opposed to more polemical. That would be more confrontational oh, types before, of... Before you do that, I, I did think of a Malcolm Muggeridge quote that I thought was always... Who? Malcolm Muggeridge. Muggeridge? Is that how you say his name? He was a reporter, I guess, that was very... Uh, became a believer. I don't know if he became a believer, but he was very kind of a um, <clears throat> out there. He was very lefty and... And he said that if God is dead, someone's going to have to take his place. It's either megalomania or erotomania. Hmm. The drive for power or the drive for pleasure. Yep. The clenched fist or the phallus. Hitler or Hugh Hefner. And I always thought, gosh, that's just so, you know, if you replace God or, or a worldview that's foundational to God, then you have no basis for objective moral values. 
and you have no basis for the value, objectively, the value for human beings. Right. So you can have things like the killing fields in Cambodia and uh, the subjugation of any people, so long as it uh, is better for the collective good. And <clears throat> what's interesting is that just in the last week, I've noticed three positive spins in, in entertainment that have um, celebrated things like communism and socialism, which are all outworkings of an atheistic worldview, all outworkings of Nietzsche and and Marx. <clears throat> One was the, the program, The Last of Us, kind of like a zombie apocalypse, and they talked about how to survive, they had this community yeah. where everyone's doing their job, and they go, well, it's a commune, it's communism, communism and it yeah. works. And of course, in the Ant-Man film, they talk about how socialism in the ant world, yeah. <laughs> how ants are working so efficiently and thriving and having amazing technology and everyone was without need. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, socialism works. See, the ants mm -hmm. are doing it. <laughs> and and you're, you're seeing this over and over again. So it's really interesting how you pointed it out. And that's, uh, that's kind of the, the main point. So uh, Thomas Sowell, uh, one of the premier intellects of our time, in my opinion, uh, he once said that the point of politics is not, <clears throat> it's not what should the laws be, but it's who gets to decide what they are. Uh, now, now, what he means by that is we could construct our perfect society all we want, but the main question is who's going to implement it and what power are you going to give them in order to do so, right? So even if, when you look at communism, it's like, it is actually a pretty perfect system. The only problem is that in order for it to be perfect, the people at the top have to be perfect, right? So our, our, our founders were never opposed to it. It's not like they didn't know about systems like that. I'm ra right now reading The Republic by Plato. Uh, and in it, you look at it, it's like, it's a totalitarian system, right? That's what he's proposing as his ideal society. And it is very top down. The main problem is, okay, great. You have this totalitarian system, but who's running it, right? Who is determining what's best for people? Who is determining what art should be allowed and what art should not be allowed, right? That's the problem. So our, mm -hmm. our founders, it's not that they didn't know that systems like this existed, but they said people in power should not be tempted by it. They need to have some sort of methodology that rules over them. Otherwise, they're going to rule unfettered, and that unfettered rule will t always turn into oppression. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that's the, the main difficulty. And then, like Sean alluded to earlier with Nietzsche, is that when you have pagan gods, they're so flawed and the, the ideologies are so messy that when you get rid of them, you could just move to another form of paganism. But if you erect the perfect view of God, the true view of God, to kill that God means that you don't go back to paganism. You go back to something else. You go to something worse. This is one of the reasons why I believe that we are in truly the last days, that Jesus' return is imminent, is because we have finally, as a human race, raised to the taunt of Satan in the garden. We actually see ourselves as our own gods. Mm. Prior to this moment, there was always some sort of a thing above us that we were giving obeisance to. Some system, some pantheon, some god of some sort. That we were giving obeisance to. This is the first time in human history that there is nothing above us. We have rebuilt Babel. Right? We have become worse than Babel, right? Mm. We don't need a tower that reaches to heaven. We are heaven, mm. right? This is it. The buck stops here. We are gods, mm. right? There's nothing higher than ourselves to achieve anymore. Wow. So that's the, the danger of Nietzsche. Now, to answer your question, why are Christians so opposed to polemics? Uh, I'll give a really short answer, and then um, I'll let you, because you deal a lot with this. Um, 
So and I, I phrase it as, does being a Christian mean we always need to be polite, right. in a sense? <laughs> right. Um, and, and by the way, this is, I believe it is another result of Nietzsche. So Nietzsche essentially is giving a map from which further future generations of atheists can essentially manipulate Christians. And he predicts that they can, and he was right. So when you look at Christian history, there hasn't really been a time in Christian history where we thought this way, the church thought this way, that you have to be polite to everybody, and if you're ever mean, you're, you're a big old meanie and you've done something wrong. You, you just don't see that in church history. What Nietzsche is saying is that because Christians believe so stringently that they have to be loving, someone can use love or declarations of hate to be a weapon, to be a tool to make Christians feel as though they're not doing the right thing. In other words, to guilt them or to bully them into doing what you want. So that's why we call it, in modern days, we call it cry-bully tactics. That used to be not be the thing, right? What used to happen is the strong man subjugated the weak man. Now what we have is people crying victimhood, and that is a motivator to the people who are powerful. Right? That's, we want to have a mind for the weak, and note those at the bottom are at the top in the kingdom of God. So they're saying, okay, I'll pretend weakness in order to coerce you into giving me more power. Exactly. So he, he predicts that people could do that. Now, he would have never done this, by the way, because Nietzsche was very much like, his mustache you see from the mustache, <laughs> no way, man. Uh, so he definitely believed in power. He's like, no, you should assert yourself through power. But what he said, what he predicted, became a blueprint for people that came after him. They said, oh, there is a weakness in Christianity. There is something we can do to, to manipulate Christians. And that is to, as Sean put it, pretend to be weak and vulnerable and therefore Christians will feel bad and they'll give us what we want, right? So that's how the culture was pushed so far by a minority within our culture, right? In, in the 50s, I think it was 90% Christian in this country. Uh, and that number, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, professing Christian, should yeah. I say, uh, cultural Christian. But still, people who venerated Christianity and adhered to a Christian morality at least, mm -hmm. uh, even if they weren't truly believers in God. But nowadays, the that minority was able to gain more and more power through pretending, doing a pretense of vulnerability to the Christian. Mm -hmm. So that's what I believe has happened. I, I don't think that it's something that you can find historically in Christianity. I think it's a modern day thing that's been brought about through our victimhood culture and our fear of victimizing other people or being seen as oppressors, which is also a, a result of Marxism that we'll get into later. But uh, that's what I believe has happened to Christians. So there's a difference between being loving and being nice right? Loving is actually seeking someone's benefit above all, including uh, their discomfort and their pain, right? So if I say something that hurts your feelings, but it has the potential to benefit you, I better say it. I should work on my language to make it as effective as I can, which means that I can use sarcasm sometimes, but I, I'm aiming it at your good. I'm not mocking you for the sake of mocking you, right? C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. He said, uh, sarcasm or skepticism is like a window. And he says, a window is useful when it looks out to a clear world. But if a window just looked out to an infinite amount of windows, it sees nothing. So in other words, to see through everything is to see nothing. So if I'm using sarcasm and humor and even denigrating your point for the sake of you seeing a greater point. Your point, not your person. Right, not my person, but my, my point, the, the higher point of God. I'm doing you a favor as long, again, and I'm trying to balance being uh, not too rude or abrasive with a message that I feel like will be taken well. 
but I'm also saying like, it's okay for me to denigrate your idea because it's wrong and it's killing you, right? And so I want you to see that. And so sometimes I'll mock it, but I'm not mocking it for the sake of mockery. I'm mocking it for the sake of conversation or conversion, right? That's the well, idea. For the others who are watching, you know, like when you go to Speaker's Corner, the more trained believers who are fighting for truth and the Christian faith and trying to be a witness sometimes are not speaking to the antagonists standing in front of them, yelling at them, shouting at them, throwing things at them, but all the other hundreds of people standing in the back listening. <clears throat> and so yeah. I find that to be... Did you watch by any chance the last few Matt Walsh uh, episodes where he talked about uh, a, <laughs> a very uh, infamous <laughs> uh, TikToker? <laughs> Oh, you have to you have to check it out. Matt Walsh is a conservative. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, today's episode, he he talks about the same subject because Christians, people who agree with him, mm-hmm. say, "I agree with what he said. He's not factually incorrect, but he's being mean." Mm-hmm. And he got a lot of the criticism for <clears throat> talking badly. Uh, well, <clears throat> by cr- criticizing uh, this guy who's uh, gone through a transition from male to female and has yeah. been. Millions of followers on TikTok and has been really uh, promoting his uh, or the life of what it's like to transition. And uh, what he said got a lot of bad feedback from a lot of conservative or people who would be considered morally conservative or religiously conservative or whatever. And uh, his response today was exactly what you just said. There's a difference between being nice and being loving. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you got to remember John the Baptist called the Pharisees brood of vipers. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites and foolish men. Whitewashed Called them blind. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said that whores and tax collectors would enter the kingdom of heaven before them. Uh, He told whole parables where they were going to be uh, hunted. They were a band of basically bandits and extortioners. Uh, Yeah, Paul talks about the Judaizers as uh, being dogs, and he actually wishes that they would emasculate themselves and not so nice of words, right? So the idea that, again— that Christians need to be nice about everything that we say, it's more of a modern innovation. And I believe, I genuinely believe it's a reaction Mm -hmm. to this type of manipulation tactic that's been employed by modern day atheists. But um, anything you'd like to add or clarify on that? Well, like the namesake for our program, a reason for hope. If we're asking where the balance is, go to 1 Peter 3.15. I'll start in verse 13 so we understand the whole statement. This is, again, 1 Peter 3. And... Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And he quotes the Old Testament, Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing uh, good than for doing evil. So let's just take that apart piece by piece. He starts with the idea of people in power using it against you. Who is it who will harm you? Obviously, we could come up with a list. But he says, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, being in a right relationship with God, if that gets their goat if that causes them to be hostile against you, you're in the right position. But what then do you do when you're in the right position? Do you just sit there and let it be overrun, or do you fight back? How do you fight back? 
to give a reason for the hope that is within you. On principle, no, to him who asks. That's personally my first judgment call for sincerity or just wasting mm -hmm. my time. Because obviously there will just be bullies in this world, people who are there just to make a stink, just to see your reaction, just to uh, get a serotonin or dopamine boost for that day. And if you're the target of that, you're under no obligation to entertain them. But if on the other hand, they genuinely want to know, maybe they're not nice in asking it, but they are genuinely giving you an opportunity for you to explain what you believe. I've had better conversations with Hindus and with actual white supremacist pagans than I have with Roman Catholics because they weren't asking, they were telling me what I ought to believe. But if on the other hand someone says, what's your position in all of this? Why do you disagree with me? That's more to work with as far as an offensive take is concerned giving an actual reason to a reasonable person than an unreasonable per person who isn't asking, they're just mm. using power for its own sake. That's where the reason for the hope that is within you with what? My New King James translation, I think, does an excellent job in translating it with meekness and fear. Now, we think meek. Well, that sounds like weak, therefore that's what it means. Well, I'm glad you graduated first grade, but let's get this into a little bit more brain cells here. Meekness is actually a military term used to describe a war horse that has been fully trained. It's literally strength under control, knowing when and how to use it. Literally a definite masculine trait, something that's been denigrated in society. I wonder why. But the ability to say, I am capable of literally stomping you into the ground, but I'm only going to use my strength to do exactly what's necessary in this moment. And trust me, when you're in situations where you're talking to that kind of person, you feel at times, I could stomp you into the ground. I want to stomp you into the ground. I wish I could stomp you into the ground, but I'm only going to give an answer to the question you actually asked. Now, note, sarcasm, maybe. Humor, maybe. Maybe I'll even a little jab along the way to alleviate that steam coming out of your ears. But if we are to demonstrate that strength, where is the line? Next verse, with a good conscience, being able to say, I don't regret that. There, there are certainly a lot of things that were said. Uh, it was the uh, uh, insult comic uh, Don Rickles, who was famous, as saying, I never walked off a stage and regret it, said, I shouldn't have said that. He always made sure that if he was going to make a joke, even in a way that would be caustic, <laughs> in a way, towards somebody, it would not be in a way where he knew it would damage the relationship long term. If we're going to make fun, if we're going to attack a position, they need to know it's the position that's being attacked, not the individual. And in this day and age, we're fairly illiterate in understanding the difference. It may take some time to explain that. But when we're talking to people, not at people, and when people are talking to us, not at us, that's where the evangelism actually happens. That's where polemics and apologetics actually happen with the ability to say, you know what, I've studied to show myself approved. I have strength, but under control. I know when to use it and limited by what I would know is a good conscience, mm -hmm. that when they try to come back at me, when they cancel me on Twitter, it's for dumb things, not for legitimate things. Because trust me, there are things that I wish I could say about people who I can honestly say are obstacles to people in the gospel, but I'm not going to post them on YouTube. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. the strength under, they know what I'm talking about. But if on the other hand, we're going to say, where is the line? Note a conscience. In future tense, can I look back and say, 
regardless of what was said, the gospel was preached and properly with the right amount of strength and mm-hmm. with fear, not temerity, not a uh, mindset that's constantly feeling under threat, but some translations render it as respect once again. Or gentleness. Yeah, and that's another issue. It's saying, I don't wish you harm, I wish you good. I want you to know the love of God, and I'm willing to exert just enough force to move you out of a position that could get you killed. And again, you you talk to different people, and it's going to come in different ways. But those are the three standards. Are they asking or are they telling? If that's the case, when you use your strength, is it something you can look back on with regret or look back on and say, I'll answer to God for what I said, and I'm okay with that. Mm. And ultimately, what is the foundation of it? If I'm being abused, will I answer to God for not only knowing those reasons, but having those reasons ready when they're needed? That's, I think, Mm. the foundation of polemics. Years ago, when I first started ministry and I was reading everything I could on evangelism and outreach, and I came across a series called Hell's Best Kept Secret by Ray Comfort. Later on, became known as the Way of the Master, and I think their ministry is called Living Waters now, but they do a lot of street evangelism, great videos, movies they've made. And uh, something he said that really kind of encouraged me years ago about that subject, what we're talking about now, about when do you know how to deal with different kinds of people since I was doing a lot of street witnessing at the time. And he said something interesting, and I want to see if you guys agree. He said, when Jesus responded to questioners or people who were there, present, he would always give law to the proud and grace to the humble. So when he would respond to the Pharisees, his reaction was give law to the proud. Uh, but when he's when someone was sincere or demonstrated any form of humility, he would give them some grace. Would you yeah, generally so, agree with that? I mean, this is kind of one of those interesting things about Christianity where it's just like, uh, the reason why I believe is not elaborated on too much within the scriptures is because it's just being a, a person. It's like, if, if I want to learn how to deal with people, I need to learn how to calibrate my responses to the kind of person I'm talking to, right? So this is not just for apologetics, it's just for life, right? As a counselor, when I'm talking to people, it's like, what kind of a person am I talking to? Am I talking to a proud and arrogant person? Well, then I need to be very direct with them and I need to be very, sometimes very denigrated to them, right? I need to look at their behavior and be like, this is evil. This is wicked. What you're doing is really, really foolish. It's going to ruin your life, right? So I'm going to be very harsh. But some people are more gentle and they're asking me a legitimate question. If I said something like that, it would just crush them. They wouldn't hear anything after the first syllable and they would just leave my office crying and they wouldn't learn anything, right? So I, I need to calibrate my response to the type of person that I'm talking to, right? So this is true in your marriage. It's true in your friendships. It's true in your business relationships. I'm supposed to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry, right? I'm listening to the kind of person I'm talking to, and then I'm calibrating my answer towards the kind of individual I'm talking to. So, um, yeah, if I'm if I'm talking <coughs> in apologetics to a, a really proud person, or even more just like confrontational person who's more assertive, I'm going to probably be very confrontational and assertive back. So there are some people that you know I've had conversations with, I've had coffee with, and we're kind of yelling at each other <laughs> in the coffee shop. And that's because that's just their personality. They're just very loud and boisterous yeah, they love it. and they love it. And then afterwards they're like, that was a good conversation. Right. Uh, other people just very quiet and respectful mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm having to be that way with them. So you have to, again, just calibrate what you're saying to the kind of person you're talking to. Well, here's a quick lightning round. <clears throat> uh, shows speak. 
<laughs> on uh, YouTube. Uh, how can people balance the reverence God deserves with the familiarity that comes from a personal relationship? For instance, praying Holy Father versus Daddy God. The dictionary, knowing what those words mean. Because note, Holy Father is just as reverential as Daddy God. The reason why we say the latter's kind of cringe is because it seems to denigrate what the first term is. <clears throat> now, when we say holy, we mean separate, apart, unique, right? Above. But if, on the other hand, we say daddy, we're talking about someone familiar, someone in authority over us, but also someone that we can be vulnerable with, personal with. You may know that whenever uh, they make the mistake of letting me pray first, I start by just addressing God as dad, not because I'm cringe, but not just that, but it's because I take Romans 8 seriously. That's the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. That's literally Daddy, the most intimate term imaginable in the Hebrew or the Aramaic language. So note the level of intimacy that God's Word himself encourages. But if we take a step back and ask, who are we talking to? That's also worth remembering. And if you can balance that, then just make sure that that's expressed in the way that you phrase it. I choose to address God as dad because it reminds me I'm talking to someone personal. I have kind of a default of the sacred nature of who I'm talking to. I need that balance and intimacy. If you're the kind of person who's very much intimate but could use more respect for God, take the conscious effort to say, okay, Lord, and it'll uh, adjust your brain cells accordingly when you're talking to him. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. We will be here again tomorrow, same place, same time. Thanks for your time, and God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.